Today's reading is from Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working and by his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Camille, for leading. I love it when she gets to come and and lead us, and we get to sing with her uh, in that. Um, Well, I wanted to share the the church's Mother's Day gift for everybody is that Frank is out of town. Um, I mean, he's really out of town. Uh, But uh, so if you sense that there's less Seinfeld references, Godfather references, hockey references, it's because he's gone. His, uh, his daughter just graduated from college. They're spending some time celebrating that, and which is great. Uh, he wanted me to share that with you. And he also wanted me to share about something that happened last week before we uh, get into the text. Uh, uh, one of the things that he did last week as part of his sermon is he brought two, in- two individuals up who both are a part of First Christian Church to share a little bit about uh, kind of how reconciliation happened within the context of their church. This was the senior pastor of First Christian Church, and then a man who had spent 27 years incarcerated, who came through it alongside ministries and is now a part of their church. Um, and it was an incredible uh, uh, thing to be able to watch and get to experience. On top of that, at the very end, Frank shared a little bit about a trip that the guy Kevin um, was going on with this church to Kenya that he was needing to raise some money. And, and Frank, not telling them about this, but basically asked if anybody is interested and wants to be able to give a, even a small part of that to them, uh, that would be really appreciated. And the total number that he needed to raise was $3,000, and I wanted to share with you, and Frank wanted me to share with you, that there was over $7,600 raised, which means that not only is he fully uh, funded, but they're able to use a significant portion of that in the ministry over there. And I, and I share that with you because when I hear this stuff and I see these things, I am just so moved. And so thankful for the way God works in this congregation. This is an incredibly generous congregation. Um, and uh, it is so exciting to see the way God will use that, um, even in this off-the-cuff, unexpected way. So thank you guys for being willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and be moved in that. Um, I know that they are just besides themselves. They can't believe that that happened. So thank you guys for that. That is, that is incredible um, to get to experience and see. Well, we are continuing, as we have been since the beginning of the year, in the book of Ephesians, and I know it seems like we're taking our time through it, but hopefully we've seen the reason we're taking our time through it is because there's so much stuff in the book of Ephesians. This is such a powerful book and such an important book, I think, for us to hear in the context that we live in, Um, that it it is expanding our understanding of what it means to uh, both receive and respond to the gospel and what it looks like lived out in our daily lives in the church. And today we're actually going to be looking at a verse that we talked about and and, uh, Frank preached about last week. We're going to start with the verse Ephesians 3.10, which is something we talked about last week, and then move forward 
partly because this is one of the most important verses in the book of Ephesians. Possibly apart from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, this is, this is really the crux of Paul's argument. And it's one of those ones where it's incredibly important, but it's not as easily accessible and easily understood at first glance. So we want to spend a little extra time, so we're kind of covering it over the course of two weeks and then covering the implications. Because what I really hope is that we walk away with both an understanding of what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul, through this verse, why it matters, because it is incredibly important what Paul is saying and then how we are to kind of interact with it. So that's the goal for today, is to understand those things and to walk away and be formed by it. So let's start by reading Ephesians 3.10, just one more time. It says this, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I'm going to read that again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That it's the church that God has chosen to manifest His wisdom, His power, not only in this world, but in the world to come, and and, and kind of beyond this world. That is an incredible thing. But I think for us to really understand what Paul is talking about here, I think we need to take a little time to understand What's in the term wisdom of God? Because this is a term Paul uses uh, um, not just here, but in other sections of Scripture that that God wrote through him. And I think if we we take some time to do that, we'll see that there's a little bit of irony in what he's saying. And it's definitely implied in the book of Ephesians, but it's more explicitly stated elsewhere. And this is the irony that, that God is manifesting his wisdom through the church. And that's plain. It means that God understands the way the world works. He has perfect knowledge of it, and he has the perfect ability to apply that knowledge to the proper context. If, that, if that's kind of our basic understanding of wisdom, it's the proper application of knowledge to context. He understands it perfectly. What he does in this world is wise. The irony that Paul always brings into this is that the wisdom of God, even though, yes, it is truly wisdom, is going to come across as foolishness. That what we know is wise will be seen by the world and be seen by, kind of understood initially as something that's foolish. Where he talks about this, I think, most um, explicitly is in 1 Corinthians. Starting in verse 18 uh, of chapter 1, it says this, For the word of the cross, which is another way of just him saying the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then in verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Later in verse 27, it says, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's ultimately saying this wisdom of God is going to come across as foolishness. And although he doesn't explicitly say that in Ephesians, we can look back in the gospel as he describes it in Ephesians and see that he's meaning it here. 
So let's look really briefly at the foolish wisdom of God that Paul has already talked about in Ephesians. He starts in chapter 1, where amongst other things, he says that God chooses to adopt people according to his sovereign will, not by our merit. That he chooses to bring people into his family, to elect people, to save people and to adopt into his family, not because we've earned it, not because we showed potential, not because of anything like that. He did it because he did it. And that's the explanation we get for it. Think about it. If you invest in something or if you were going to hire somebody on, you would never buy a stock you don't know anything about. And if you hire somebody, you're going to Hire somebody that shows potential or has some proven track record or something like that. It is common wisdom that if you're going to choose to bring somebody into an organization, you are going to do your homework on them and try to avert as much risk as possible. And so you would think that that is how God chose his people. But that is not how God chose his people. That is not why God chose us. In fact, if there's any indication of the type of people God is choosing to bring into his family, it's the opposite. It's the people who show the least amount of promise, the least amount of potential, and are least deserving of it. That's who he's bringing into his family. So it starts by pointing out the foolish wisdom of God that is truly wisdom but comes across as foolishness. And then in Ephesians 2, it goes on. It says he saves us by his grace, not by our works. Generally, we think people will value things more when they have a little bit of skin in the game. It makes sense. that At, le- at the very least, participation makes sense. So if we're looking at the way, the wise way for God to have saved people is at least a partnership. That, you know, we do enough good works and then there's like a funds matching thing that God does and he matches our good works and somehow that equals enough to get us into heaven. And although that seems a little silly how I described it, that is actually the way most religions would approach the process of salvation. But that is not what is described in here. That there's no funds matching, there's no participation, there's no uh, partnership in any of this. Paul, Paul says that we were dead when God chose to save us. We brought nothing to the table. No amount of our morality it had nothing to do with our background. We were dead. And God chose to save us. And it comes across as foolishness. That doesn't seem to make sense. It seems like we would value this more if we earned it a little bit. But that's not how God went about it. Once again, we see this wisdom of God that looks like foolishness, but is truly wisdom. And then it goes further. From verse 11 through 22, it talks about how he forms a family out of enemies and strangers. If you've read like any leadership books or anything out there that talks about how do you form a team or build a community of people that are going to be efficient in accomplishing a certain mission, the last thing you would do is get a bunch of people who disagreed with each other, don't like each other, and, uh, and just don't get along. You won't accomplish anything. You'll just be kind of dealing with all the conflict. So the way God chose to form his family and the kinds of people he brought into his family don't make sense on its surface. That this is the least efficient and effective way God could have formed a people group to accomplish his mission. It seems like foolishness. 
Yet that's exactly what God does. He forms a family out of enemies and strangers. And this is the wisdom of God that Paul talks about. Next, he gets personal. Ephesians 3, uh, we kind of learned here, and this is why we know this, because he mentions it here in verse 3, that, in, in chapter 3, that he is currently in jail. He's currently in prison as a result of the work that, God, of the work that he was doing for the sake of the gospel. And he kind of goes a little bit into his own uh, history and the fact that he's doing what he's doing would come across as foolishness. It doesn't make sense that God would call a Jewish rabbi who oversaw the death and persecution of Christians to preach to the Gentiles. Now let's think about that for a little bit. First, that he calls a Jewish rabbi who persecuted Christians. He is one of the most least likely converts in the whole Bible. And I want you to think just, uh, just about this moment. If we've ever felt like there was tension in the, in the church, I don't think we've ever really thought about what it was like for Paul to come to the Jerusalem church. You have this guy named Stephen, whom everybody loves, whom everybody thinks is an incredible person with incredible potential, and all of a sudden, he doesn't even finish his first sermon and he gets murdered. This person that they deeply loved. And the person overseeing this is a guy named Saul, whom we know as Paul. And then two weeks later, that same guy shows up in your church, and you're supposed to take communion with him. You're supposed to pray with him. You're supposed to care for his needs. You're supposed to walk alongside him and be friends with him. That was probably a little awkward. So it doesn't make sense that God would call that person into that church. After that, if you can move beyond that and kind of move beyond the awkwardness and tension, you just got one of the most trained and skilled Jewish rabbis to become a Christian. If there was anybody in the early church more suited to be the apostle to the Jews, it was Paul. Paul was not an outsider like the other guys. He was an insider. You have Peter, John, and James leading the Jerusalem church. These were fishermen who dropped out of rabbi school. You have a guy who went to the Harvard, or Steve was here uh, first service, Steve Wheeler, one of our elders. I said Princeton, whatever you want to say. He went to a top-notch rabbinic school. He studied at the feet of a guy named Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, or somebody who else who sounds like they were from the Lord of the Rings. He studied with them. This guy was an insider. He knew the Bible back and forth. He had memorized the Old Testament. If there was anybody who should have been used to preach the gospel to Jews, it was Paul. But that's not where he's called. He's called to the Gentiles. And the irony of that is not missed on Paul. Paul talks about this all the time. He said that me, I was called to the Gentiles. And it's weird, but I trust in the wisdom of God. And so he goes for it and he continues to say this wisdom of God that is truly wise comes across as foolishness. And the reason it's so important that we see this kind of underneath all of the way that Paul is talking about it is because if we don't see that, then we will misread Ephesians 3.10. Because by the time he gets to Ephesians 3.10 and he actually finally mentions the idea of the wisdom of God, we need to see the irony in the fact that the church is the vehicle in which God is proclaiming the wisdom of God. He's not saying in the church, this awesome thing is now 
what's proclaiming the wisdom of God. He's saying it in this context of the church. Yeah, those people, those guys that you never thought would amount to anything, those people who were a bunch of strangers and enemies and, and, and were contrary to one another, those people who were sinners and, and all of this stuff brought into this family. Yeah, that group of people, that's who God chose to show his wisdom to the world. So we see this now. It says God is now using this family of misfits, outcasts, strangers, enemies, oppressed and oppressors, to confound the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realm. Now one of the things we should take away from this verse is that we should have a very high view and high regard of the church. We're going to see this, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this the rest of the day, that the church matters. That what you guys are participating in matters, but we need to make sure we understand why it matters. And it's not because we're all a bunch of great people. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) It's because God has done something great in our midst. God is using us, yes, even us, to do something that is so far beyond us, so far beyond something, anything that we were capable of. To do, And now we, because of his grace, because of that wisdom, are get to participate in it. We should have a high view of the church, but often not for the reason we think. If you look at the following two verses, we kind of see how this works. Because we have to ask the question, well, how are we supposed to live in this? God calls us to be the church, and we see that the church is important. We're not just showing the wisdom of God to the world, but we're actually confounding the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places, which is something that I don't think any of us really understand what that means, and we'll talk about that in a second. But at the very least, we can get that that's a big deal. And even in Ephesians 4, we understand, like, God is not saying this as a suggestion or a hope-for outcome. God expects the church to be the church and act like the church. There's an expectation that if you've been brought into the church, you will act like it. And so we ask then, well, how does this work? What does this mean? We see it answered ultimately as it continues. In verse 11, it says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So the way this works, the reason why the church is able to do this, or more so, the reason why God is able to do this through the church is not necessarily because of the church per se. It's because of what Christ has accomplished and the fact that now the Spirit is dwelling within the church. The foolish wisdom of God is accomplished through Christ, and the church lives this wisdom out boldly through our faith in Him. We can write that, we can put that up on screen because I think it's important for us to think about this. The foolish wisdom of God is accomplished through Christ. Christ is the culmination of the wisdom of God. And the church lives this wisdom out boldly through our faith in him. The church is cosmically important, not just contextually important, but cosmically important. The implications of the significance of the church go beyond anything that we see or oftentimes think about. We are a part of something much, much bigger But it's not because of us, it's because of Christ and the spirit that dwells in us. It's weird to think this, but what this is saying is that we are God's plan. Might be weird to think about for a while. And this is kind of what Paul was getting at. 
saying, well, how is God to accomplish, going to accomplish this incredible cosmic victory over sin and death? How is he going to proclaim this thing? How is he going to manifest this out? He says, well, the answer is the church. And people are like, really? That's it? And what we see is that we are God's plan. And it's because of what Christ has accomplished and the spirit that dwells within us. We have to think of why this matters, and I think it, it, it comes back to this idea of the authorities in the heavenly places, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We've talked about this before because Paul talks about it earlier in the book of Ephesians, and it's not going to be on the screen, but I want to read this to you because this is where it kind of first comes up. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and, every, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And when we looked at this first, we talked about that these aren't just kind of harmless entities, spiritual entities living in the world, that these are the rulers and authorities, the demonic forces that are bringing about evil in this world, that are deceiving and oppressing the world. These are the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that are responsible for the deception of mankind. And their job is to make foolishness look wise. And they're very good at it. If we want to know why does it matter that the church does this, it's because the, heavenly place, the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places are deceiving the world. To convince the world that what is truly foolish is actually wise. Um, many of you guys know that I spent about 10 years in Texas. Maybe you guys didn't know that. I'm from here originally. I grew up at 56th Street in Greenway, Horizon High School. Um, I don't know if there's any fellow Huskies in the room. Um, but I grew up here. But I lived in Texas for 10 years, and, uh, which was an interesting experience for all the reasons you can imagine. Um, and so I love reading news about weird stuff that happens in Texas because I lived in Texas, and I saw weird stuff. And probably my favorite story is one that happened about two years ago. Um, and it has to do with something that we in Arizona don't really ever have to deal with. Um, but if you live in Texas, particularly East Texas, it's something that you do need to deal with and realize is there. And it's a creature called alligators. Um, like, we can jump into just about any body of water here and at the very least not be worried that we're going to get eaten by an alligator. In Texas, you have to take it very seriously. There are real alligators that live in real lakes and real places of bodies of water that will really do things to you that you don't want to happen. Um, and so this is a reality of Texas that we don't really deal with but is there. Um, and now there was this, uh, this bar in a town called Orange, Texas that um, had a lake right next to it and recognized that there was an 11-foot alligator living in it. And so they decided to put up this sign. This is the sign. Now, uh, Ben Bear pointed out earlier that punctuation could have helped because yeah. what it looks like is that there's no swimming alligators. Um, so maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, but they were trying to warn people, hey, don't jump into this body of water. There's, there's at least one alligator in it. We can assume there's probably more. Now, the reason why, because this is the actual sign, not just a generic sign. This is the actual sign from this bar. The reason why you can find this on the internet is because there's a funny story attached to this one. 
Um, this man, who grew up in Texas his whole life, uh, was at this bar one night and saw this sign and decided he didn't care. And I'm going to be editing this story for content and context, but what happened, and it wasn't just this sign, there was people there saying, hey, you shouldn't go into that water, there's alligators in there. And what he said is, forget that alligator. You can edit that however you want. He said, forget that alligator, and he jumped into the water. And within minutes, this poor man was killed by an alligator, Um, which, yes, it's sad. The guy died from an alligator but it's a little funny, the context of how it all happened. That that was literally his last words, that he jumped into the water saying, forget that alligator, and then gets eaten by an alligator. Um, And I'm pretty sure that that's why I even know about this story, because the irony of the whole thing, the, the sheer ridiculousness of the foolishness of this moment is at least newsworthy. I share that because... What's happening in this world and the goal that the rulers and authorities have, although it looks different and it's far more subtle, is ultimately the same thing. They are trying to convince a bunch of people to jump into a lake filled with an alligator. That's what they're trying to do. They want you to ignore the wisdom of God, the wisdom that is proclaimed, and, it, and just jump in. That the foolishness that these heavenly rulers and authorities are trying to portray is one that will ultimately lead to your destruction. And in the midst of this, what God is saying is that the church is the sign that's mispunctuated. The church has been put in this world as a sign of wisdom, trying to keep people from jumping in the alligator lake. But what's hard is that although we can look at this and say, this is ridiculous, the guy shouldn't have jumped in the water, it doesn't seem as ridiculous when you actually look at it play out in the culture. We can take down the sign if we want. Or we can keep it up. So I want to... Okay. <laughs> you have a power. <laughs> um, So I want to take some time because I think it's important that we see why it matters that we do this. Because people are being deceived into jumping into this lake. And the rulers and authorities are much more cunning than this guy. And this list is not exhaustive. There are so many things. But these are some of the big things that we see. And Frank has talked about this significantly in sermons before. Of the big things that come across so wise at first but are so foolish and lead to destruction that the church needs to be able to show the true wisdom of God in. So I want to look just briefly at the wise foolishness of the rulers and authorities. The first, we've talked about this before, it's the folly of the gospel of politics. And that does not mean in any of these things that I'm saying you shouldn't care about politics or shouldn't be involved in politics. We had Chuck Coughlin up here a few weeks ago who is heavily involved with this, and I'm so thankful that there are Christians deeply involved in politics. That is not what I mean here. What I mean is this overarching belief that the good news of reconciliation, the good news that Paul talks about in all this stuff, can be accomplished through a social contract. That by just agreeing on a common constitution, all of these things can become true. 
It seems so wise on its surface, but it's foolishness that leads to destruction. If you don't believe that we're living in a world that believes this, look at any piece of money that you have. It says this phrase on it. It says, e pluribus unum. Does anybody know what that means? It means out from the many, one. Sounds a lot like what Paul was describing, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. The difference is that the way it's accomplished is by all of us just agreeing to a social contract. It is promising something that seems so wise that I think we all have a longing for, but it will never be possible to that. It is a foolishness that leads to destruction. And the world needs to see the true wisdom of God in the midst of it. Second one that I thought was worth pointing out, because it's so prevalent and deceptive, is the folly of the gospel of progressivism, also known as wokeness. Okay, if you've never heard of wokeness, just walk around a college campus for just a little bit of time and you'll hear the term. Uh, wokeness is just your ability to be woke, to be awakened, enlightened to all of the various issues and various problems in the world. Um, I, so I'm an adjunct professor at GCU, and like being woke is literally the best thing that you can be there, to be woke. Uh, it turns out not doing homework is cool, but being woke is the best. And really what it, what it is, is it's rooted in this belief that the good news of reconciliation can be accomplished through enlightenment and education. That if we just know enough, that if we just educate ourselves enough, if we are aware enough then all of this stuff can be fixed, can be healed. People can be saved. And if you want any indication of the folly of this, just study 20th century history. Okay? So I, I, as an undergrad at Texas A&M, I was a history major who studied 20th century history. And the main area I focused in on was the rise of fascism in Nazi Germany and Italy. These are two of the most woke nations of the time that accomplished some of the worst atrocities mankind has ever known. Progressivism, wokeness, enlightenment, education, seems so wise on its surface, but is a foolishness that leads to destruction if we believe that it can do the things that only God can accomplish through Christ. The last that I'll mention is the folly of the gospel of hedonism, also known as YOLO. If you don't know what YOLO means, it stands for you only live once, and the implication being, so do whatever you want. Uh, if you don't know kind of where this is coming out, just watch every Disney movie ever made. Every Disney movie is pre preaching this gospel. You know, find yourself, become your full self, let it go. Let it go, don't let it hold you back anymore, let it go. And it seems, once again, it seems so wise, this idea of self-realization and self-fulfillment. Become your fullest self. Lean into your truest self. Live out your passions. It comes across as so wise, but it is so foolish. And if you need to understand why it's so foolish, volunteer in one of our toddler classrooms. Toddlers have no other capacity but to live life as YOLO. They have no other capacity. They can't think beyond it. They're like, I only, I, I, all I've got is this. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to act how I want. I'm going to do whatever feels right at the time. 
Like, uh, we have a two-year-old at home, and literally last night, I'm watching him walk around in the backyard of our friend, and, I mean, he, this is our free-range kid. He just does what he wants. And I just, for whatever reason, like, nobody was around. Nobody was asking him to do something. He just picks up this, like, tr- truck, this toy truck, looks around, and just throws it, walks away, doesn't care. Imagine that with grown-ups. And that's what you see. This is the foolishness that leads to death and destruction. And we could go on. There's the gospel of moralism. There's the gospel of religiousness. There's the gospel of stoicism. The gospel of money and comfort. All of these things are things that on its surface seem so wise, but are foolishness that lead to death. All they are are lakes filled with alligators. And this is why the church matters. This is why you matter. This is why I matter. This is why all of us gathering here, real people in a real context, in a real community, matter. Because if we don't do this, then the world does not get to see the folly that leads to death. It matters that we do what we do, that we participate, that we lean into Christ and live out the reality of the church because people are being deceived into a foolishness that leads to death. And although we might wish there was a backup plan, the way God talks about it through the scripture is that there's not. We're it. We're the plan. This is how the world will know the true wisdom of God. So that's what we see, that the church is God's plan for proclaiming his wisdom to the world and beyond. If this seems like a daunting task, it should a little bit. And in fact, it should probably seem a little impossible. And we need to deal with how, how does this work? How, how are we supposed to actually live into this? Because as I said before, the, the Bible doesn't say this as a wishful thinking. The Bible expects people who have been called, saved, and reconciled to actually act like it, to actually live this out and be the church that God has called. In fact, in verse Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There is an expectation that we live like this. So we have to ask, how? How do we actually do this? How do we live the way that God calls the church to live? How do we do the things that God says the church will do? Well, if this is like your very first Sunday... Um, I preach about once a month here, but most of the time I'm up here playing music. I'm usually right there. Sometimes I'm elsewhere, but usually I'm right there playing music, and I'm leading and directing the band. And um, if you haven't noticed, you will notice after I say this, but everybody up here on the band has uh, headphones in. Uh, We call them in-ears, and it's not because we're trying to just drown you guys out. It's because that's how we have chosen to hear ourselves. Um, it's a, to try to keep stage volume at a low so we can kind of control sound and all that stuff. So we, keep, so we all have headphones in, and uh, that's how we're hearing ourselves. Um, but there's something very important going on that everybody who plays in the band knows about and is incredibly significant that none of you guys hear or know about. So if you've ever wondered how we're up here, and all of a sudden you hear this wall of sound, and you look at us, and no, no drummer's not doing anything, and we're just bobbing our heads all at the same time, 
Or if you hear somebody come in perfectly on a perfect tempo, or the drummer starts a thing, and we do a break, and everybody comes back when they're supposed to, all of that stuff. Everybody is very good, but the reason why we're able to do that is not because everybody's very good, but because there's something else going on in our ears. And I actually wanted to share with you what that sounds like. So just listen, are you ready? I'm going to let that linger for a little bit. So in all of our ears, while it's, everything's going on while we're playing music, oftentimes when we're having to talk or share or anything like that, this is going on behind us. This is something called the click, and it's a metronome that we're all playing to, that we're all listening to. I should let it go on just so you guys get a taste of why we are a little crazy by the end of the day, but I'll stop it. We're all listening to the click, the thing that we're all locking into, and it's important that we do this because it doesn't matter how good the drummer is. If I'm trying to play off the drummer and find the right tempo, or somebody else is starting something, we're ultimately going to fight against one another, and it's not going to be very tight, and it's not going to be very good, and it doesn't really matter how good the musicians are. The job is not to play to one another or to play out of our own strength. It's to lock into the click. And the reason why we're able to start songs with confidence, the reason why we're able to follow along with confidence and trust that we're not going to start a song too fast or too slow or anything like that is because we're locked in to the click. We're constantly submitting our tempo to the click. The reason I share this is because I think it's similar to how we as a church are to act. What does it mean to live with confidence and boldness in the world? How does Paul talk about this? Because if we think of it as that we're going to rely on our own strength, our own morality, our own goodness for it, we'll ultimately find that we fail. If we're going to be doing this because we think we're good enough, we're ultimately going to fail. What Paul is ultimately saying in verse 12 when he says that in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him is that the way this is accomplished is that we all play to the click. We all lock in to the click. We're not playing to each other. We're not playing out of our own strengths. We're submitting to the constant, steady truth of the scriptures in our lives. It says through our faith in him, we are there, we are submitting to that, and we are living out of that. And faith is something bigger than just, hey, we believed in God at one time, and now we're saved, or we kind of agree with kind of a set view of principles. It means that daily, we are submitting to something that oftentimes feels wrong or foolish. That's what it means to live by faith. That when the rest of the world looks at us wondering why we feel like that we have been called into this community, even though it's clear that we didn't deserve it, we can look at it and say, this is the wisdom of God, and we submit to that. When everybody else is trying to earn their way in, we recognize, and we live out, and we proclaim the fact that we're not here because we deserve it, but because God loves us. When we're spending so much time around people that we don't like, that we have nothing in common with, and people think, hey, you're wasting your time, we look at them and say, no, I'm submitting in faith that this is the wisdom of God. We are locking in to the click. We're locking into that steady truth of the scriptures on a regular basis. And that is how God is able to accomplish through the church what he claims he's accomplishing. That is how he's able to do what he says he's going to do. 
is submitting to Christ in faith. Paul is kind of ending kind of a parenthetical section here as he gets to verse 13. He started by talking about how he was in prison. And that he, through that, like, he's been shown the mystery of the gospel, that God is bringing both Jews and Gentiles into the faith, into the context of a community, that he, this was his plan from the beginning, and that this, is, this church is showing the manifold wisdom of God. He's kind of completing this section when he gets to 13. But you have to remember that he's in the midst of prison at this time. And he's answering a question that I think is important for all of us to answer. He says in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. One of the things that I'm constantly asking myself as both a human being, as a Christian, and as a pastor is, is what we're doing worth it? There's a lot of times when this is great. Like, I, I love getting to do what I do. I love the... Um, getting to play music and be a part of that. This is an incredible, I'm incredibly blessed to be a part of what I'm doing. There's times that it's really hard. And more than that, there's times when it seems really silly that we're doing this. And, if I, don't, and I think if we don't have a good answer as to why we're doing this, when things get hard, we'll fold and we'll walk away. If you look at Paul, Paul had everything. Paul's story should have been that he grew up in probably, we don't know this, but probably a family of means, given the pedigree that he ultimately accomplished. On the inside track, I mean, this guy could have been a chief priest someday. You need to see this. Paul was like on that level of tracking. He could have accomplished everything, and he could have, you know, died of old age with probably a lot of wealth, and students that loved him and adored him, revered him for his zeal, in fighting against the rebellious church people. But that's not what happened to him. He gave up everything, everything. Died in Rome, beheaded. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked. All of these things, because deep down inside, he believed that what he was doing was worth it. He believed that losing his life for the sake of, of not just Christ, but for the church, was worth it. We need to ask ourselves the question, do we believe that this is worth it? You guys get to be a part of the most significant rescue mission of all time. And it's not because you have superpowers or anything like that, but it's because God has called you into it regardless of who you were, has equipped you regardless of how you've been equipped before, and has given you a power that you did not possess. God has brought you into this. You are a part of the most significant and incredible thing known to man. This is so worth it. Not only do you get to experience life the way God actually intended it, not only do you get to experience freedom and healing, mercy and compassion, not only do you get to experience all that, but you get to be a part of the way God is showing that and redeeming people in the world. 
And if all we do is come here and think, oh, this is a cool social club, I have some friends here, when push comes to shove, that's not going to be enough. If all we think this is a great time to network or this is probably helpful and healthy, when push comes to shove, it's not going to be enough. The church does matter, and you guys are part of something significant, but we need to see it for the right reasons. It's because we get to experience life the way God intended. We get to actually live in the wisdom of God in a world that is filled with foolishness. And we get to proclaim that wisdom to a foolish world that is dying. And that is good. And maybe some of you guys are in here, you're hearing this, and you're thinking, man, I really want to be a part of that. Well, allow the wisdom of God proclaimed through the church to work in your life. That you can become a part of this, not because of who you are, not because you bring anything to the table, because God has called you. And that is incredible. That we get to be participants in the work of God's mission. So let me pray for us as we continue in this, and then we'll continue to, uh, to worship through communion. Lord Jesus, God, thank you that you have redeemed us. Lord, thank you that your wisdom that appears so foolish, God, has brought us into the way the world really works. Lord, has given us life that we didn't have. Lord, has given us wisdom that we did not possess. Lord, and has brought us into something that is proclaiming your wisdom to the rest of the world. Lord, it is confounding and conquering over the rulers and authorities that are deceiving this world. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that. Lord, it is your grace and your goodness that allows us into so great a mission. Lord, I pray that we would respond to it, Lord, with excitement. Lord, we would respond to it with passion, knowing that following you and serving the work of the church and the mission of the church is more important than anything we could possibly gain. Jesus, we are so thankful for you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.